to Strange New England. I'm your host, Tom Burby. The Purington Murders of 1806. Please note, some of the descriptions in this episode are quite graphic. Please use discretion with younger listeners. You are lying in your bed on this hot July night. It's been a long, hot summer with no rain for weeks. The ground is turning to dust, and the wind is warmer than usual. Outside, the light of the moon is bright as it peeks between the curtains, and if you're still, you can hear the rustle of the leaves and the peepers outside in the distance. You close your eyes again and know that soon you'll drift back to sleep. There are chores to do in the morning, and it will come soon enough. As you lie there drifting back to sleep, you hear a sound. Something not ordinary, something not expected. You stiffen and listen more intently. Time slows down to a crawl as you attend to every single noise. What was that? Was that your mother? Your sister? And then a thump and a muffled scream bolt you to attention. Someone is in the house. Someone is moving in the darkness. Another muffled sound. Someone is in trouble. You jump out of bed, shouting for your father to help as you move toward the door, but it's too late, and from the light peeking in at the window, for the moon shone bright, you see the glint of an axe, and you see the form of a man moving toward you with dire intent. The axe falls, but you're fast, and it glances over your shoulder instead of into it. You're near enough to the door to make your escape into the yard away from your assailant, and you run. And as you run, your mind is a whirlwind. You cannot shake the vision that fills it. That man, that man wielding the axe, that man who is undoubtedly attacking your family as you run for help, no, it couldn't be because he's the one who was supposed to protect you and support you. But you know it as surely as you feel the pain in your shoulder. The man who attacked you is your own father. Captain James Purrington was born in Bodenham, Maine in 1760 and was from good Yankee stock. His father was a Cape Cod man and his mother was from North Yarmouth. Having married young Betsy Clifford of Bath, James came into an inheritance upon the death of his father that set him up as what we would today call a rich and independent farmer. Indeed, he seemed to possess everything a man could desire for the sum total of happiness. But there is always more to a person than possessions or achievements, something deeper and more essential to the true character within, something that few people even suspect might be there hiding in the dark shadows of a mind. What makes one person successful might make another person a failure, depending on such intangible things as outlook and point of view. James Purrington was a man with a grave countenance, a man who kept his own counsel in polite company, 
and who, it is claimed, had trouble looking another man in the eye while he spoke. It was, perhaps, simply an idiosyncrasy, just a way of his. But add that to his way of never believing he was wrong, never admitting to an error. James Purrington always had to be right. Those who knew him claimed that he was easily elated or depressed, depending on how well his finances fared. Some ideas seemed to weigh more heavily on his mind than others. And for all of these qualities, he was also a tenacious worker, a man who understood what it meant to do an honest day's labor. As the captain of the militia, he took his responsibility toward his community very seriously. Yes, if there was one word that might sum up such a man, it might be that he was responsible for his community's safety, for his family's well-being, in this world and the next. As prosperous as he was in Bodenham, he made the decision to move northward. In 1803, Maine was still the frontier of the United States. This sparsely populated area was settled mostly along her waterways and coast. And whenever people of a certain disposition found the world creeping a little too closely to them, many of them moved north, and that meant inland. Captain Purrington purchased lot number 17, a hundred-acre plot of land just above the established farm of Ephraim and Martha Ballard in Augusta, along what is known today as the old Belgrade Road. The Ballard farm was small but functional, while the captain's lot of land was still wild and needed clearing. Having built a shelter on the land, James Purrington set to work clearing it by the toil of his own hands, while his family remained in Bodenham. In August of 1805, he had cleared six acres of his hundred, evidence of how hard this man worked. He had done more in two years than most men did in four. The locals in this new little neighborhood respected this quiet, sober man who had tamed his patch of wilderness. Soon, he moved his family into the sturdy house he'd built for them. If they shared bedrooms, there was room for the six children whose ages ranged from 19 years old to two years old. Everyone would have to do their part to make the new farm work. It was like a new beginning for the family. Martha Ballard, whose diary is one of the primary sources we have of life in Maine in the early 1800s, claims that the Purringtons were good neighbors who often visited her. She cooked bread for them and had tea with Mrs. Purrington and often visited with the children. Martha Ballard traveled far and wide in her role as midwife in the region, and once Captain Purrington even took time to bring her to and from a delivery. This was just the kind of thing neighbors did for each other. They had to rely on each other through the good times and the bad. The move from Bodenham must have seemed like it had been a good one. What would make a prosperous and respected member of the community move to a much more difficult lifestyle in the wilderness? To give up the relative comfort of an established farm for the grind of a new one must have required a push from some direction. We don't know why James actually moved his family, but perhaps it had something to do with his standing in the faith. Most Christian circles adhere to the idea that souls are saved only if they find redemption in their faith in Jesus Christ. 
Those who do not find salvation or who are not born again will not enter the kingdom and will ultimately find their souls in some other place, a place of torment, a place away from God's mercy. Early New England was a fruitful field for those who believed we were all sinners in the hands of an angry God. But as the years went on, many Christians who had been brought up with such a doctrine began to doubt it, and other ideas began to form. It's possible that his beliefs contrasted with those of his peers in Bodenham, and perhaps the move was instigated as a way to practice his new faith away from the judgment of old friends and acquaintances. Many New England towns at the time were split on the grounds of religious dogma. Free will Baptists believed that sinners could choose to accept or reject Christ's offer of salvation. The New Universalists believed in a benevolent God and free grace for all believers. Both of these new beliefs rejected the Calvinist idea that only a few predestined souls would ever enter heaven. Purington rejected that idea. And to that extent, it separated him from the community that had previously embraced him. James Purington was a man who must have moved from this idea of special salvation to a new one at the time, circulating quietly throughout the land. The Universalist movement was only just beginning, and how Purington first heard of the doctrine we'll, we'll never know, but we do know from a pamphlet published shortly after his death by local Augusta printer Peter Edis that Purington believed in the idea of universal salvation. According to this doctrine, the mercy and love of God was divine and was such that anyone, any sinful soul, no matter what they believed in life or what they had done, would be granted salvation. They didn't even have to want it. It would simply happen. God's love and mercy must be stronger, better, and deeper than that of human love and mercy, according to these precepts, Jesus, the adherents believed, died for everyone's sins, not just for those who wanted to be saved. We know that James Purington believed this. In Edith's tract on Purington, he states, He was obstinately tenacious of his opinion, and it was very difficult to convince him that he was in error. He has frequently, however, voluntarily changed his religious sentiments, and he died a firm believer in the doctrine of universal salvation. When surrounded by his family, he has been often heard to express his fond anticipation of the moment when they would all be happy, and has sometimes added how greatly it would enhance his happiness if they could all die at once. The summer of 1806 saw precious little rain, a reason for grave concern for the subsistence farmers of Maine at the time. In his pamphlet, Peter Edis claims that Purington seemed greatly depressed and when speaking with his neighbors, spoke of his concern that his family would suffer for want of bread and that his cattle would starve. His tendency to suffer from depression when things were going poorly made him dread the consequences of a drought. His brooding was something his family knew about, but they must also have assumed that it would pass as soon as the next heavy rain. The first suspicion that something was terribly askew occurred on Sunday, July 6th. While his wife and eldest daughter went to prayer meeting, James remained at home with the other children. His daughter Martha noticed her father writing a letter. When he perceived that she had seen him in the act of writing, he quickly concealed the letter from her sight. 
She asked him what he was doing, and he replied, nothing. And then he asked her for his butcher knife, claiming it needed to be sharpened. She brought it to him, and he spent some time sharpening it. And later, daughter Martha witnessed him standing quietly before the mirror, moving his left hand over and over his throat. This singular act caused Martha to exclaim, Dada, what are you doing? And again, his answer was, nothing, as he laid the knife solemnly down on the table. When Betsy returned from church meeting, Martha told her what had happened. A clandestine search for the letter he had been writing was made, which was found among his papers. It reads as follows. Dear Brother, These lines is to let you know that I'm going on a long journey, and I would have you sell what I have and put it out to interest, and put out my boys to trades, or send them to sea. I cannot see the distress of my family. God only knows my distress. I would have you put Nathaniel to Uncle Perrington to a tanner's trade. I want James to go to school until sufficient to attend in a store, Benjamin to a blacksmith's trade, or to what you think best, but to be sure to give them learning if it takes all. Divide what is left, for I am no more. Betsy confronted her husband with the contents of the letter. What could they mean but suicide? What journey other than the long journey from one world to another? James Purrington tried to console his distraught wife. He told her that he had no intention of committing suicide, that instead he had had a premonition of his own death, that it was near, and he was merely taking precautions, just in case. According to Peter Edis, nothing could console Mrs. Purrington. It was simply too terrible to contemplate. But something was horribly, terribly wrong in the mind of Captain James Purrington. Perhaps he was considering suicide, except now his wife and family knew of his plan. Therefore, he had to change it. If he killed himself, would not his family grieve terribly? Would not that sorrow go on for the rest of their lives? Was there a way to minimize their distress and bring the family back together again to perfect and never-ending happiness? We are presented with three contemporary documents that detail what happened in the Puritan house on the night of Wednesday, July 9th, 1806. The first is the pamphlet written immediately after the events of the evening, printed and sold by Peter Edis, an Augusta area printer from Boston, famous for, among other things, filling the punch bowl several times for the Patriots who threw tea into Boston Harbor, and being jailed by the British for 107 days for watching the Battle of Bunker Hill from a distance and rooting for the Patriots. Edis was a shrewd salesman, and he knew a good story when he heard one. He moved quickly to print the details of the night, though we don't know his sources. He made sure that any good detail was fleshed out into a lurid one. The other document we have is the one we must believe to be the most reliable and valid source, Martha Ballard's diary. Martha was the Purrington's next-door neighbor. She knew the family, and she was one of the first to visit the Purrington home. Her diary entry is very short, almost too brief to describe the events. 
It's almost as if it was too much for her poor heart to bear. The final source is the verdict of the jury of inquiry, a succinct document that lays out the details of the crime. Together, these three documents, accompanied by the statements of the two surviving children, paint the terrible sequence of events of that fateful evening. Martha Ballard and her husband Ephraim were sound asleep when a commotion at their front door awoke them at three in the morning. Two neighbors greeted them at the door with grave news. Captain Purrington had just murdered all of his family, with the exception of his 17-year-old son James, who had been wounded by his father with an axe as he fled the murder house. James had showed up at another neighbor's house in only his shirt, his shoulder covered with blood. Martha's son, Jonathan, accompanied Mr. Wyman, the neighbor, to the Purrington house. Upon returning to his mother's, he described what he saw as he went from room to room with nothing more than the light of a single candle. Peter Edis's pamphlet is entitled Horrid Massacre, Sketches of the Life of Captain James Purrington, the night of the 8th of July, 1806, murdering his wife, his children, and himself. In it, we can read his red prose. In the outer room lay prostrate on his face and weltering in his gore, the perpetrator of the dreadful deed. His throat cut in the most shocking manner, and the bloody razor lying on a table by his side. In an adjoining bedroom lay Mrs. Purrington in her bed, her head almost severed from her body, and near her on the floor a little daughter, about ten years old, who probably hearing the cries of distress, alarmed and terrified, ran to her mother for relief and was murdered by her bedside. In another apartment was found in one bed the two oldest and youngest daughters, the first most dreadfully butchered, the second desperately wounded and reclining her head on the body of the dead infant, and in a state of indescribable horror and almost total insensibility. In the room with the father lay in bed with their throats cut the two youngest sons, and in another room was found on the hearth most dreadfully mangled the second son, he had fallen with his trousers under one arm, with which he had attempted to escape. On the breastwork over the fireplace was the distinct impression of a bloody hand, where the unhappy victim had probably supported himself before he fell. As grisly as Edith's description is, there is also Martha Ballard's description of what her son saw that night. She says, They, too, went to the house, where the horrid scene was perpetrated. My son went in and found a candle, which he lit, and to his great surprise saw Purrington, his wife, and six children's corpses. Martha, he perceived, had life remaining, who was removed to his house. Surgical aid was immediately called, and she remains alive as yet. My husband went and returned before sunrise, when, after taking a little food, he and I went to the house there to behold the most shocking scene that was even seen in this part of the world. May an infinitely good God grant that we may all take suitable notice of this horrid deed, learn wisdom therefrom. The corpses were removed to his barn, where they were washed and laid out side by side, a horrid spectacle which many hundred persons came to behold. I was there till near night when son Jonathan conducted me to his house and gave me refreshment. 
The coffins were brought and the corpses carried in a wagon and deposited in the Augusta Meeting House. James Purrington, on hearing the cries of his mother, arose from his bed and shouted to her to see what was amiss. He was able to throw his shirt on and run toward the door when his father appeared and struck at him with an axe. The axe passed over his shoulder, glancing off, making only a superficial wound. At this point, twelve-year-old Benjamin awoke and began to run when his father prevented him from doing so with mortal consequences. James Purrington later said, that this was all done in utter silence. Everything was done efficiently and with a coolness colder than death. Martha also survived, but her wounds would soon prove fatal. She recalled that as the family retired to bed that evening, her father was still awake, reading the Bible. She awoke in the darkness of her room as her sister was murdered next to her. She was hit three times, but rolled away, feigning death. Within days, she perished from her wounds. What followed was perhaps the largest public funeral that Augusta had ever known. President Washington had died six years earlier, and that event had brought the people together to publicly mourn his passing. But even this rivaled such a spectacle. Leading the funeral procession were the men who had been part of the jury of inquest, along with the coroner. Behind them, were the victims in their coffins, followed by family members and citizens from all walks of life, from clergy to militia, magistrates, and workmen. Each family member's coffin was carried by neighbors and friends upon shoulders. James Purrington's body was placed in a wagon and was the last in the procession. Strangely, someone had placed the bloody axe and razor on the top of his coffin. The bodies of Mrs. Purrington and her children were ceremoniously buried in the common burying ground in Augusta. Captain Purrington was interred without the wall, which can be taken to mean that he was put into a hole by the side of the road in an unmarked grave. Why did James Purrington kill his family and then himself? It's clear that he had a large enough estate and money enough to see them through the harshest of droughts. He had made it clear to neighbors that he worried that his family would starve. For that, we can turn to the words of Timothy Merritt in a sermon he preached at Bodenham not ten days after the tragedy. Merritt knew Captain Purrington. He had been his minister before the captain shifted his family north, and he understood what was in the heart and mind of his old congregate. It's clear that Merritt pointed to Purrington's belief in universal salvation as the cause of this heinous and violent act. In fact, with a little imagination, one might picture Merritt speaking with Purrington about this wrong belief in which he persisted. Remember, Captain Purrington liked to be right all the time. How well would he take it when a man of the cloth perhaps upbraided him for straying from church doctrine, imagining that everyone, no matter how sinful, could be saved? Might he have suggested to Purrington that he could no longer be a part of that congregation if he persisted in this belief? Did Purrington anticipate such a thing might happen and move his family to a place where they could escape the watchful eyes of the minister? What actually happened we cannot know, but we can read Merritt's words concerning Purrington and his reasons. He writes in from his sermon, 
You all know that for some years past, he has professed to believe firmly that all mankind, immediately upon leaving the body, go to a state of the most perfect rest and enjoyment. And to my own certain knowledge, he denied the doctrine of a day of judgment and retribution. Of course, it was no question with him whether his family were regenerate or born again, or, in other words, whether they were prepared for so sudden a remove from this world. It was, therefore, natural, and what anyone would do under the same circumstances, to endeavor to prevent the anticipated trouble of his family and make them all happy forever. There is every reason to believe that this was his real motive. If the next world is guaranteed to be better than this one, no matter what, claims Merritt, then Purington was only taking care of his family by slaying them in the bright moonlit night of July 9th. They were to be together forever in a blissful state. No matter how good this world is, the next one is immeasurably better, so why not hasten towards it? But Merrill made sure to drive the point home to his congregation, to the same congregation that Purington had once belonged, that the captain's beliefs had been in error. You don't get into heaven that easily. Murder is a sin. Hell is real. Not everyone is saved. What James Purington believed will never be known. It must remain inexplicable. They did live in the isolation of an early Maine farm with only a few neighbors for company. His life had radically changed from the move from an established farm to a new hardscrabble one. With a lot of time on his hands and a few people to challenge his perspectives, James Purington may have fallen victim to his own peculiar view of this world and the next. Perhaps it was a kind of religious error that caused him to become the angel of death in his own house that night. Perhaps he was what we would today call depressed, or worse, psychotic. What we do know is that on the night of the massacre, the family Bible was opened to the ninth chapter of the book of Ezekiel, which reads, He cried also into mine ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near, even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. Let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women. But come not near any man upon whom is the mark. You've been listening to Strange New England. 